This is Dennis Ramundi. I'm here with my co-host, Phil Goldberg. Our podcast, Spirit Matters, found at spiritmatterstalk.com. Our guest today, Dr. Christian Conti. He is a licensed professional counselor, a certified domestic violence counselor, and a certified level B anger management. That's a very high level of anger. He's worked <laughs> in the prisons. And I want to mention his latest book, Walking Through Anger, a new design for confronting conflict in an emotionally charged world. Uh, he's a, a practitioner of Zen Buddhism, and he's done some amazing work and in the prison. So, uh, Christian, thank you so very much for taking the time to come on and uh, speak with us today. Thank you so much for having me. I genuinely appreciate this. Christian, uh, let's begin where we usually begin, by giving our listeners uh, a sense of how you came to be who you are and the work you've done. So if you can give us a sort of overview of your spiritual background and um, what brought you to uh, specialize in uh, what you specialize in. Yes, that's wonderful. I, so, I mean, in terms of a spiritual background, uh, this is definitely the first podcast I will talk about that with. <laughs> I don't tend to go into it a lot, but, you know, I, I grew up uh, Roman Catholic. Uh, my parents... Uh, are devout uh, in their faith. And my dad is such a great intellectual, uh, my mom too, but my, my dad really always told me to question things. He never said just accept whatever. And he pushed me academically, intellectually. So I questioned things my throughout my life. I studied religion intensely. Um, I did end up in uh, where, you know, our daughter's 14 and her entire life, I know that she's only known uh, Buddhism. That's been her path. Um, so that's a, it's a really important, our, our spiritual path is important to us. I say I don't talk about it much because the, the reality is in the work that I do, the focus isn't on me, it's on who, uh, whomever is in front of me. So I don't really, uh, you know, I don't get into that a whole lot. Um, in terms of how I got to where I got, so many people get into what they're doing because something happened to them or maybe this experience hit home for them. That is not the case with me. I, I identified in my in my new book, I've identified two reasons, really what led me to what. I would say, uh, look, I, I can't, I'd be remiss if I didn't tell you my tagline. I really believe that in life there, there are two kinds of people. There are people who have issues and dead people. So if you're currently <laughs> alive. <laughs> yeah, if you're currently alive, you've got issues. So do I, so does everyone. Um, but in terms of how I got into anger and specializing in people convicted of violent crimes, the reality is uh, it was very different than what you might expect. Um, my mom was an English teacher. Um, so when I was going to ninth grade, my mom was super disciplinarian, right? She's a, a thinner woman, small, smaller woman, but she was very, <laughs> she was very strict. And one of the things she told me before I went into ninth grade, and I grew up in a type of high school where there were fights all the time. And she said, look, I better never find out you ever watched a fight. <laughs> if you see a fight, you better step in and break it up. <laughs> <laughs> so you can imagine me, you know, a skinny ninth grade kid uh, jumping in and breaking up fights. And people used to be like, why are you doing that? And I'm like, do you want to face my mom? <laughs> <laughs> That's great. You want to go face her, good luck to you. But anyway, so I learned early on that when conflict occurs, don't run from it, run to it. And uh, I've always stepped into conflict. And the other aspect that kind of led me to doing what I'm doing uh, my dad was an English professor for like 15 years before he switched over to earth science, which he spent the rest of his 
40-year career as a professor, as an earth scientist. And when I was a kid, teenager, haughty little know-it-all teenager, I asked my dad one time, I said, why, why do you study rocks? Like, what do you, what do you enjoy about that? <laughs> and my dad said, well, if you only live on one planet your entire life, don't you think you ought to get to know that planet? And I was like, wow, that, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so when I was in college and I was wondering what to study and I was kind of lost, I thought about his advice, but I took it another step further and I realized I'm only ever going to live with me, so why not get to know myself? And and uh, that's really the path that led me down psychology. Um, to, to And I think one one story led, one event led to the next in the story of everyone's life. Great. Great. Christian, let me ask you, I'm really fascinated by this. Uh, uh, you... you uh, you work with prisoners in prison. Uh, I got to think that the uh, stress level is extremely high. I, re I mean, I've I read some uh, work in that area. Uh, 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 I've read that uh, a lot of people who uh, wind up in prison are people who have been abused as children, uh, and I would imagine carry a lot of anger. <clears throat> Tell us about how you first got involved in, in uh, working with prisoners, and was the experience what you expected it to be, and, and how did it evolve? And, and you have a specific program you have uh, for people in prison. Number of questions, but just yeah, uh, let's start in that area, and then we'll move into the book. No, great. Those are great questions. So I'm a I'm six feet, uh, two hundred fifty pounds. I'm a bald guy with a beard and tattoos. Um, it, it, you know, you see me and you think that guy rides a motorcycle, and and you're right, I do. But. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> So, but I kind of dress in a t-shirt and jeans wherever I go. I, I have not a pretentious bone in my body. Um, I'd always believed it was my job. Like if I came across information before you, I get to share that with you. If you come across it before me, you get to share it with me. So I kind of see us all equal. And how I got started, I, I did it under, I kind of went incognito and I would sit in on these anger management groups. And, and so in the state of California, you're convicted um, once you have been convicted of violent crime, you're sentenced to 52 weeks of anger management. Now, this is outpatient. So you've already completed your time in prison or jail, and now you have to do 52 weeks outpatient every week. Um, so you, you can imagine the guys were pretty angry when they got there. Um, but when I, when I first started to sit in on those types of groups just to kind of observe and be undercover, one of the things I noticed was uh, two profound things. One, the teacher was real pejorative. He would talk down to the guys like, some of you are psychopaths. You're never going to change. So I was sitting there thinking, my goodness, why would anybody change if I'm being told I'm a psychopath and will never change? And then the other thing happened was in terms of the guys, um, they would there was they had to write what was called a letter of accountability. So this is great for bureaucracy. People get to say, look, we're, we're making our guys accountable. But the reality was the guys were like, hey, uh, scratch this out, just write this, erase that, erase this. And then, then they, they would pass. And so here I was thinking, people were saying this person is now okay to be in relationships and safe for society, but he really just in the last minute just cheated and wrote down whatever the other guys told him to write down. So I thought this can't be the path. And uh, so I did a study on my yield theory. It was effective. I took over. And honestly, one thing, I guess, led to the next. And, uh, you know, that's how I kind of got involved in that work with people who were convicted of violent crimes. And it was it was a logical step to go from the outside then to the inside to meet them where they were in the prisons. Now, um, as I understand it, um, at one period, you actually it sounded like um, from the press material we got you actually spent time in the prison you didn't just go and visit on occasion 
Well, so I spend six months in a prison. I go in and when I say spend that time, like I'm there for a work day or actually a really crazy long work day because I'll go from morning till night. Mm. But it's not that I'm not that I'm getting inside a cell and staying there. Obviously, I've spent time where I've I've asked guys, you know, I've gone in a cell and had them just close the door. So I, my whole philosophy is about seeing the world through other people's eyes or at least attempting to do so. Um, so certainly I've gone into, and I specialize, I go into maximum security prisons. My job is to consult. So I spend six months at a time really working with inmates, working with officers and getting to know that particular facility and what they need. Mm. So I am in there all the time. I am in prisons all the time. Uh, I did a talk, Ted talk on why I chose to go to prison. Look, seven out of 10 people who leave prison come back. And whereas many people can say, well, what, what's that matter to me? I don't know anybody incarcerated or whatever. But the reality is, who do you think they are reoffending on? It's your family, my family. It's it's our, our society. Right. Now, now uh, I'm going to ask you, Christian, when you work with, uh, in the prisons, you work with prisoners, uh, and you work in regard to anger management, are you just working with men or are you working with women also? And if you work with both, are there different dynamics between men and women in regard to anger? Oh, yes, 100%. So I definitely work with both. I spent actually eight, eight months in a maximum security women's facility last year. Um, and uh, I predominantly obviously work with in the men's prisons. There are obviously more, many more men's prisons. Um, but it was fascinating to do that time in the women's prisons because – I was working in what was called a special. Uh, it was called a behavioral management unit. These women struggled with some of the most intense self-harm that I had ever seen. And if you can imagine this, I specialize in working with people convicted of violent crimes. I'm one of four people with level five anger management certification um, in my field. The other three are like 30 years older than I am. So, I uh, when I when I talk about the stuff I do, I'm really in there in those prisons with people who are doing this stuff. And when I was in a men and women's prison, yes, there are differences. Um, I'll give you an example. In the men's prison, you need to be alert for your physical safety. At any moment, something could break out. And the reality is, even though it might not, it could. And so you have to be on alert. In a women's prison, I, honestly, with my size and strength, I probably could have taken a nap in yard and not been up, not worried about my safety. But emotionally, it was extraordinarily uh, draining because the, the women, especially the women in the unit I worked in, they had tons of anger, but their anger stemmed in really what's called something called, uh, it's called borderline personality disorder. If you were to look up a clinical term for it, um, that's the fancy term. The rea Here's what it boils down to. Sometimes people feel like their body's in crisis. And so they create crises around them to make sense out of that because our mind really wants to match our body. Mm -hmm. um, so these women are doing some intense self-harm. I mean, it's really sad to watch. One woman was banging her head so badly off the uh, off her cell door. Her face was misshapen based off her banging her head. I mean, it's really sad to stand that close with someone and talk to them and see them suffering in that way. So, yes, there is a difference. In men, it's more impulsive, more um, I'm about to lash out and hurt someone, whereas with women, especially the women I worked with um, in the maximum security prison, it was about hurting themselves. Um, so there was a little difference in that. Um, Christian, the core of your work seems to be what you came to call yield theory, Y-I-E-L-D theory. 
Um, can you explain how that came about and what it is? And if you would, uh, given the uh, orientation we have on this show, how did your uh, Buddhist studies uh, play into that? Yes. So um, essentially it's this. Look, anytime you want to talk to someone, you have an option. You can talk and make sure you just say whatever you need to say. Oh, I told him or I told her. The question is, did you speak in a way that was actually heard by the other person or did you talk just to let your ego say that you said whatever you needed to say? My work is centered on speaking in ways that actually work for people. And that means making an effort to circumvent their fight or flight response. Mm -hmm. So yield theory is about circumventing people's fight or flight response. It's about leading with compassion and giving them some conscious education, giving them information that they didn't know previously that can help give them insight in the moment. So here's how the original metaphor came about. I, I meditate frequently. Um, I'm a big believer in meditation. Um, you know, in, in, in 20 years ago when I would teach it, people thought, well, that's out there. And now it's kind of like exercise. I and mean, we can talk about meditation and the reality. It's just like, hey, exercise helps you be in shape. Meditation helps your brain. Fair enough. I can cite clinical study after clinical study, but at the end of the day, meditation is helpful. Mm -hmm. So at the end, I was doing a meditation back in, this was 1998, and this vision came to me of, if someone was struggling driving down, and this is a hypothetical, so just let's suspend our, our logic for a minute and just do a thought exercise. Let's say someone's driving down the road and they're going the wrong way and, and they could hurt somebody, so you want to stop them. Well, one way is you could drive headfirst in your car and smash into them, and you'd stop them, sure. You or one or both of you is going to get hurt. Another option is to merge with them, kind of go up to a yield sign, merge with them, join with them. After a while, you start driving side by side. They say, hey gas is expensive, I'm going to invite you in the car. So they invite you in the car. Again, this is a thought exercise. So now you're seeing things out of their windshield. Oh my goodness, things become much more clear then. And then eventually over time, maybe they get tired on the trip and they allow you to drive. And that's when you can steer them down a different path. That's the substance of, of yield theory. Said differently in the martial art Aikido, it's a push-pull mm. philosophy. So if I push you, you pull me. If I pull you, you push me. It's the opposite. So I kind of combine those concepts and I think about if someone comes at you with a lot of anger, our first sense is, oh, you need to calm down. <laughs> but as I always tell people, when in the history of the world has anyone ever heard you need to calm down and said, oh, yeah, you're right. I didn't think of that. <laughs> <laughs> when we hear you need to calm down, we get upset. We get defensive. And again, the goal of yield theory is to see, meet people where they are genuinely, psychologically where they are circumvent their fight or flight response and speak in ways that can be heard. So what I found is, and this is how my spiritual beliefs play into this, you know, the Buddha talked about, um, you know, if you, if you imagine it almost like fingers, like if the index finger thinks it's different than the pinky finger, you know, oh my goodness, I'm so different obviously than you, but the reality is it's all one hand. And so my spiritual beliefs kind of led me to see people as all, we're all a part of one thing. If you got a cut on your foot, you're not going to chop your foot off. <laughs> you're not going to be rid of it. <laughs> Start punching it because it's hurting. Um, you're going to take care of it. Yet in the world, when we see other people who are, who are make, causing pain because they themselves are suffering, you guys said it earlier, people don't just wake up and hurt people. They, they've had things happen to them. And when we see people suffering, I kind of look at them the same way as they're in pain. And so I try to meet them where they are, see the world from their perspective, 
I listen, I validate. Now, remember, validate doesn't mean I'm condoning. I don't condone violence in any way, but I validate their perspective, and then I help explore options. What what can we do differently from this moment forward? So if I can follow up, Dennis. Um, yeah. Christian, let's take uh, – I was going to ask you for an example. Now, I'm sure that in your life and work, people have confronted you with a great deal of anger, and you learn not to say calm down. What do you do? All right. So uh, there was a guy who came up to me. I was in the, doing my anger management groups, and a guy came up to me. He was furious. Face is all red. So I had these two-hour groups. I'd have a 10-minute break. So he comes up to me at the break, and he says, uh, "Man, doc, don't even try to don't even try to calm me down. I'm so pissed." He said, "My uh, my girls, that she's in co- co- cohorts with the with the police, the parole officers." They t- I said, "What's going on?" He said, "They tested me three days in a row. Three days in a row." He said, "It's corrupt. The whole system's corrupt." I said, "My man, listen. I'm not gonna try to calm you down. I'm not gonna try to calm you down at all. My question for you is this: If this was us, you and I talking a week from now." How do you think you'd be handling this situation? He said, a week from now, I guess a week from now, I might say, well, maybe, I guess maybe they had a right to test me. I guess it's parole. I'm on parole, so I guess they have a right to test me technically. I said, okay, cool. And and again, I don't have, we're not going to, I'm not going to try to calm you down. We don't even have a lot of time to talk here. So my question is for you, if, if it was like a month from now, I'm wondering what you might say to yourself. Like, what would, what advice would you give you? He slowed down a minute. He took a breath. He said, I guess if it's a month from now, I'm saying to myself, I don't know. I guess I guess maybe my girl didn't have anything to do with it. I guess my parole officer is the one that keeps noticing my history with drugs and asking me about it. So maybe it had nothing to do with her. Hmm. And I said, my man, that's pretty cool. I, you know, and again, listen, we don't have we don't have a lot of time to talk today. And I, I'm not going to try to calm you down. But my question for you is this. If this was a year from now and you and I were standing here <laughs> talking about the same thing, what do you think you might say to yourself? By this time, his face is completely not flushed anymore. He's not. He's not angry. He's not, you know, visibly angry. He said, "Man, Doc, I guess if this was a year from now, I guess I'd probably say, damn, I still had a lot more to learn.'" I said, "My man, that's pretty powerful. I think you're a lot farther than you realize." And and I mean, in this sense, this is a great analogy. This is a great like a visual of what yield theory is. I'm not trying to stop him from being angry. I'm literally not trying to stop him from being angry. Um, and I think people. They find so much resistance because anger is scary. It can lead to violence. But I don't try to stop people from being angry. You're allowed to be as angry as you want to be. What I hope you do is make a decision that's more effective, not only for you and everyone around you, but let's say the most self-centered person in the world. I want you to make a decision for your future self. And think about this because you're going to have to live with the decisions. Your future self will have to live with the decisions that you're making right now. Great, Christian. Uh, when you're working in the prisons, is anger management part of the training for prison guards? And, and is it a big is anger a big problem amongst guards? Because I, I would imagine they're often provoked, and uh, you want them to respond not based on anger, but on based on rational thinking. And I would imagine that's also very very difficult if you're uh, provoked by somebody who is very angry. Yes, yes, yes. So Pennsylvania, the Department of Corrections has officially adopted yield theory. Last week, I started the first of the trainings. We're going to train 18,000 employees in yield theory. Um, And yes, absolutely, because you hit the nail on the head. Um, Our job, you know, Lao Tzu says this in the Tao Te Ching. He says, what is a good man but a bad man's teacher? What is a bad man but a good man's job? So yes, if you're working as a professional and you're 
coming up against people. This isn't a bank. Look, comedy is really funny amongst the prison, uh, like people who work in prisons, and it has to be because you have to find something to balance the absolute horrific stuff we're dealing with and seeing all the time. But we always laugh and we say, could you imagine if like a parole officer or, 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 or a corrections officer worked at a bank? The type of stuff we see every day, could you imagine if somebody with a normal job talked about this? Like people, uh, you know, putting feces all over their, their cell and throwing it at people and like throwing urine at people. Like this isn't conversations that people are having about the bank, you know, at, at a regular job. So there is a sense of like this dark humor that's associated with it. But part of that is this. It's natural for people to start to take things personally. And even though many officers will say, especially those who have been around for a while, oh, I don't take things personally. My next question is, do you ever yell at inmates? Oh, yeah, all the time. Well, then you're taking it personally, because if you truly don't take it personally, you're able to handle it in a much more effective and professional way. Interesting. Um now, uh, Christian, our listeners uh, are tend to be uh, spiritual practitioners and uh, the sort uh, uh, many spiritual teachers. So, of course, they never get angry. So, um, no, my my question is, what would you say to people about their own anger? Uh, not not people in prison necessarily, but people out there listening to this who maybe to their surprise, find themselves getting angry at times that they didn't think they would or holding on to a grudge or shouting at the television because, you know, something was in the news that pissed them off. What do you say about anger to them? Right. So there are two two main things I would like to share with them. One, just the way I talk about two different type of two types of people in the world, people with issues and dead people, I say there are two worlds that we live in. Uh, one world is what I call the cartoon world. This is our world of shoulds. Uh, she should think the way I want her to think. He should do what I want him to do. People should. So then we get into these shoulds. The problem with that is those. that's a cartoon world. I use cartoon because that's how silly it is. The reality is it's the real world. The real world is the way the, the world as it is. So as long as you align your expectations with the cartoon world, which is how you think things should be, you're going to be really upset when people disagree. But when you learn to align your expectations with reality, you're much more prepared for it. So that's a huge one. And I go into detail about that in the book. Um, the other aspect is this. Anger is not wrong and bad in and of itself. So what if you were to personify your anger? Imagine your anger as an old wise teacher. What would your anger be teaching you in every given moment? So if you're angry in, a, in let's say, a traffic jam, what's your anger trying to teach you? Is it trying to teach you about patience? Is it trying to teach you about what, what message is your anger trying to teach you? I think that's a powerful lesson for people. Right. Christian, I wanted to ask you a practical question. We have people listening in, and uh, you know, we mentioned that you are a certified domestic violence counselor. You're certified at level five anger. If somebody's out there and they wanted to get certified as uh, uh, in that way, uh, like as a domestic violence counselor, how would they go about doing that? So I always advocate people to go to the National Anger Management Association, um, N-A-M-A-S-S, namass.org is their uh, uh, website. Um, I think that's, that's a great route to go through to do that. Um, I personally got 
domestic violence certification through an organization, uh, gosh, so many years ago. I, I would have to think about that. Um, but I think the National Anger Management Association is ideal. Um, Dr. Rich Pfeiffer is one of the leading anger management specialists in the world, and he runs that organization. Um, so I would definitely go that route. And if I could ask a follow-up, <clears throat> does that organization uh, typically attract people who uh, want to be certified uh, in domestic violence, say, uh, as a counselor? Does it attract people who uh, have anger management issues themselves uh, in, in, in an uh, Above average. I mean, uh, the, the typical person that comes in, uh, you get a, a large percentage who have uh, issues with anger themselves. So they, they're wanting to help other people, but they're also coming in uh, to help themselves. Yes. Listen, I think anytime you're talking about the helping professions, and this is anecdotal. I'm not talking about a uh, double-blind study right now. This is anecdotal. 20 years in the field, 21 years in the field doing this stuff. I typically encounter people who do what they do because something happened to them in their personal lives right. along that line. Uh, yes, I think that is very much, uh, very, very true from so many people. Um, I kind of always prided myself on that was something different. Like I've never not said that I don't have issues. Of course we have issues. Um, but there was no one event that led me in. For instance, why I specialize in, in working with, especially inmates, um, I don't know anyone who was ever in prison, that kind of stuff, but I, I think I've always been passionate about like uh, the whole concept that we are all one. And I'm claustrophobic. I wouldn't want to spend my life um, in a in a eight by 10 room. So I have compassion for people even when it's not my issue. And I believe that's really what the Buddha asked us to do was to really look inward and understand that we're all connected and take care of each other, even if it's not our issue. Now, you just mentioned compassion, which is a good segue to the question I wanted to ask next. It sounds like uh, much of what you're uh, calling people to do is uh, to communicate with people with compassion. You talked about, I don't know if you used the word, but it sounded like you were talking about empathy. Um, are there ways for people to develop qualities like compassion as opposed to just, you know, try to be more compassionate? Yes, yes. And I'm so thankful that you asked this question. Um, wow, I really am grateful that you asked this. Yes, 100%. So many years ago, we would wonder, can somebody be more compassionate if, they, if they're not, that's not their, quote, nature? Um, yes, um, there, there have been tons of demonstration studies that have demonstrated clinical uh, demonstrations that um, we can increase people's compassion. Here's what here's here's what people can do. Every listener out there can do this. Start to imagine yourself as the person that you're really upset with. So picture whoever you're angry with, and now instead of fighting them, imagine you're them, not you're you pretending to be them, but you have their cognitive functioning, in other words, their intellectual abilities. You have their affective range or their ability to experience emotions and you have their life experiences. Now imagine you're seeing the world from their perspective with their, so you can't say, well, I had a tough life and I didn't do that or I had tough experiences and I didn't choose that. No, you're talking about that's your cognitive ability. Imagine you're that other person. Now, the more you practice this over and over, yes, you absolutely do increase your ability to be compassionate. Um, since in antiodromia, fancy word, Jung coined about we go from one extreme to the other, tends to dominate in our modern world, 
I'm not saying that if you see the world from others' eyes, you accept or condone violence or you say, oh, that's okay. That's not what the point is. The point is to understand. So it's very difficult for people who just take a very, just put their foot in the water and don't really explore this subject. It's not easy for them to understand that when I say to be compassionate, I'm not saying that we give in, we let people get away with anything. My consequences are extremely strict um, and I don't and I don't give in on them, but I don't have to do them with violence. Or I don't have to do them with anger or ego. It can be simply a matter of fact. If you choose to do this, if you come late to the group, you have a consequence. That's up to you know. It's up to you if you choose to come late or not. But you have a consequence. So yes, we can increase loving kindness. We can increase it, um, and that doesn't mean you have to then give in and just roll over. A quick follow up, Dennis. Um, you said you know, imagine yourself um, to be them. Uh, with their life experience, uh, cognitive ability, etc. Do you have people then say to you, I don't know what that person's life experience is. Am I to just theorize? Am I to uh, speculate? Of course. And of course, it's a hypothetical. And of Good. course, it's a thought experiment. And of course, um, we can't really have an answer out of this. But it's in the practice of attempting to uh -huh. that you start to see that there are more sides to the box than what you're currently seeing. Uh, Christian, I wanted to ask you uh, one final question from my side and then turn it over to Phil. And that is uh, your, your, your new book, Walking Through Anger. Uh, what what uh, can and should people expect from reading that book? Uh, that's, I, I really appreciate you asking that. So uh, this is kind of a legacy book for me. It's my seventh book I've written. Um, I tell a lot of Zen tales, uh, teaching stories. Um, that's when I'm a professional speaker, I go all the country. People seem to really like those. I have maybe over a hundred little teaching stories in there. So people are going to be able to pick it up, flip to a random page and enjoy that. But if they really sit with it chapter by chapter, they're going to find not only is it personal growth for them and learning how to handle their own anger, but more importantly, it's going to help them contribute to peace in the world because they're going to learn how to handle other people's anger. They're going to learn how to step to conflict, not away from it, but do so in a way that's led by their essence, not by their ego. And they're going to find peace. I wish people peace all the time. And the truth is this book I feel really proud of is going to help people in, in, in some way find peace. Great. If I so, can, uh, yeah, just uh, one question about our sort of collective uh, moment in history right now. Um, I would think that hate is closely connected to anger. Um, how, um, what, can you leave us with some uh, wisdom from your uh, set of experiences about all the hate in the world and um, what we might be able to do collectively? Yes. And honestly, the Buddha taught that the three poisons, greed, hate and delusion and, and hate is sometimes um, translated as anger. So you're right. You're right on the money with that. It, it is similar. Two sides of the same coin. So uh, I think if that's one of the primary three poisons that we have to look out for, it's worth really putting time in to think about how it's impacting us. I think that most people believe their hate is justified. Rarely does someone say, I, I have hate, but my hate's not really justified. Most times people say, I have hate, my hate's of course justified. Mm. What's interesting from my perspective, seeing so many things from so many different sides for 21 years, um, everyone justify, justifying your anger doesn't make your anger or hatred right. 
Um, the Buddha talked about anger will never be overcome by anger, but by love alone. And that is uh, what I do in the book is I show you how you can practically use that love to overcome hate because you're hurting yourself. He says it's like picking up a hot coal and throwing it at someone else. So you're burning yourself before you ever get to the other person. Let me take that a step further. I was working with a woman recently who was really angry at someone who wasn't even in her life currently. So I told her about what the Buddha said, and I had a water bottle next to me. And I said, imagine this water bottle is a hot coal. So I handed it to her. And I said, now you want to shut, throw it at her. And she said, but I don't even know where she is. And I said, that's the point. Like, you're running around <laughs> holding this anger and hate. Right. And you can't even find her. So you're burning yourself even longer. Well, she tossed the water bottle on the floor real quickly. And I said, that's it. Now let's work together to find a way to let this anger go. I, I think that if people can set their egos aside, they recognize that it's only our egos that believe that our hate is justified. Our true self, our essence, that deeper part of us isn't dwelling in that realm of, of I need to be right and everybody should believe what I believe. It's, it's, it's a more compassionate, a more expansive view of human nature. I think I'll use that water bottle trick on, I know somebody who's been angry at a relative for 30 years, holding a grudge, and can't remember why. <laughs> Something happened, but it's holding on. <laughs> holding on, it's, it's powerful. So I do a lot of creative techniques. I, I wrote a book, uh, Ted, 12 years ago called Create, uh, Advanced Techniques for Counseling and Psychotherapy, and I do a lot of creative techniques. I always have my whole career. I included many of those creative techniques, um, uh, new ones from that other book, in, in this book, in Walking Through Anger. So people are going to see, because creativity is a part of my fundamental components. So I have uh, three core actions and seven fundamental components, and the reason why I say creativity is this. We all learn in different ways. And if our goal is to speak in ways that impact people, we need to be creative about meeting people where they are and speaking in ways that could be heard. Yeah, what, right. one final point I wanted to make, too, is I think it's great you're doing this in the prisons. But if they did this in the schools and made it part of the school curriculum in elementary school and high school, we'd probably have fewer people in the prisons. Yes, yes. I could jump out of my seat. You can't see me. I'm so excited because that's what I'm getting at. I do this, and I do, look. I don't just work in prisons. I do. I work with professional athletes. I do work uh, in the NBA. I do work football players, like all the professional athletes all over the world. Some of the best athletes. I do work in businesses. But we just proposed me revamping uh, the in-school suspension in this state because what are we really doing to people? Like if we if we're upset with a kid, we put him in a room and he stares at a blank wall. And we think we're teaching them something. And my, the same thought I have for prisons, I have for kids doing in-school suspension. Why not learn about why you're there and then learn about how to avoid that obstacle in the future? Yeah. I think it's great you're working with professional athletes. You may want to move on to the fans next. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> you're right. People get so fired up. Um, right. Uh, uh, Christian, one more uh, mention of your new book, Walking Through Anger, A New Design for Confronting Conflict in an Emotionally Charged World. Just out from our friends, it sounds true. Um, I'm going to give you a few seconds to uh, tell us what a previous book of yours was, because the title uh, leaped out at me, Zen Parents, Zen Child. So Zen Parent, Zen Child is a book 
um, that is the key is right there in the title. If you want your children to be Zen, you've got to be Zen yourself. So many people can identify intellectually that their children learn more by what they see than what by the by what they're told. But do we remember that every single day? Um, parenting to me is the most important thing I do. My daughter, our daughter is the greatest person on the planet. She's phenomenal. She's never missed a day of meditation since she was six and a half years old. Um, I knew along that if I want for her to have peace, I've got to teach her peace. And that doesn't mean once a week or once a month. It means every day. And we focus on right speech, right action, the, you know, the eightfold path. And we, and we focus on that every day. And for parents, to, when they pick up that book, Zen Parents, Zen Child, they'll see that you can sit with some of those reflections. I mean, that's the intention of them, to be able to sit with them for a long time and really meditate on, on them and ask yourself, am I doing these things? And if not, what can I do to get them done? Very good. Christian, thanks so much for giving us the time. Uh, continued success with your important work. Thank you. Yeah, thank, I can't thank you, gentlemen, enough. Yeah, thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate you. I love what you're doing. So thank you so much. It's an honor to be on your show. Thank you. Okay, be well.